Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The following podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all listeners. During your experience as a judge, did you ever personally see an expert witness testify who wasn't necessarily, in your opinion, qualified? Yes. The case that stands out in my mind the most is United States versus Hebshi. That's former judge Nancy Gertner. Mr. Hebshi was on trial for arson. The claim was his business burned down and that he had set the fire. The opening witness in the trial was the dog handler. And the dog handler got on the stand and said, Billy is my dog and I've trained Billy. And I can tell when he snorts or wags his tail a particular way that he is identifying where the fire started. I heard that testimony and I said, I think the jury should take a break now. And then I turned to the defense lawyer and I said, are you gonna challenge this? Because it seemed to me that it was testimony that was entirely subjective. The lawyer says to me, no judge, I'm good, keep going. I bring in the jury, the dog handler keeps going. I'm getting more and more uncomfortable because it seemed to me that he was drawing conclusions that were out of proportion to anything that the dog did. So I kept on excusing the witness and turning to the lawyer. Are you gonna challenge this? Make a long story short, the man was convicted. I think he got a 10 year sentence. There was a mandatory term and there was nothing I could do at that moment. How did you feel? I was horrified. 
I'm supposed to be making certain that the playing field is level. And I thought that that's what I was doing by asking the lawyer if he was going to challenge it. But I couldn't do any more. Do you believe that Pepsi was innocent? I don't know. But a few years later, another lawyer came into the case and challenged the first and said, you know, there really was an elaborate body of science that suggested that this dog handler testimony was problematic and that that ought to have been presented to me before the witness took the stand and it ought to have been presented to the jury. So I reversed the conviction. Mr. Hebshi then got out of prison after I set aside the sentence and he died two years later. So it was, it was a tragedy all around. When Hebshi was originally being tried, in that moment, is it when you realized there was a flaw in the system of using expert witnesses during trials? The experience of walking into a courtroom with the defendant and walking out without him while he's led away in chains is a chilling, chilling experience and makes you want to make the system more fair as much as you can. In our final episode, we're exploring how to improve this flawed system of expert testimony. That is, if it's even possible to do. I looked him dead in the eye and I said, your expert's wrong, you need to get another expert. You have these sciences that are labeled forensic science, but they're theories, they're myths. The trial is dog and pony show. All these people heard was lies. I was horrified. There's nothing a judge can do. There are no standards. There are no qualifications. There is no oversight. Simply because somebody is accepted as an expert doesn't necessarily mean that they know what they're talking about. From Discovery Plus, ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, Experts on Trial, a seven-part series that investigates a crisis in the American court system that will leave you hoping you're never accused of a crime that an expert says you committed. Billy and I have spent a long time dissecting the issue of expert testimony and how it's used in courts. We've uncovered a series of disturbing revelations along the way. From the alarmingly low bar for supposed experts to take the stand, to the untested forensics they are so often debating, it's clear that the system, to say the least, needs improvement. So how do we fix it? It's the same question that former judge Nancy Gertner has asked herself since the day she watched a man named James Hebshi go to prison because of suspicious expert testimony. It's a crushing experience. Evidence was admitted that shouldn't have been, in my view, you really feel for the person. Yes, there would be an appeal, but the appeal was gonna take years. And while ultimately the conviction was reversed, it was reversed after he had been in prison for five years. Um, and, you know, that's a long time, no matter what anyone thinks. And then when I was on the bench, I felt a special responsibility to make sure that the proceedings were fair. You know, the Hebshi case 
uh, highlighted my limited ability to do that. And is it ultimately up to the judge presiding over the case to determine whether or not somebody is qualified and able to testify? I stand at the gate at determining whether this expert witness meets the standards. Then I monitor the testimony to make sure that the expert stays within his or her lane. But as a judge, I am 100% dependent on what the prosecutor says and what the defense lawyer says. Everyone thinks that judges are so powerful, but people don't understand that if the lawyer doesn't challenge something before the trial begins, the trial begins, I'm hearing it with the jury as well. We need highly qualified lawyers on both sides. Judge Gertner believes the first step to addressing the problems within expert testimony involves widespread education. Prosecutors, defense attorneys, and judges need to understand the limitations of the forensic experts they put on the stand and the sciences those experts are discussing. If they were armed with this knowledge, they would be able to spot when forensic science testimony overreaches. First of all, is the field that he's testifying about a field that is actually a scientific field? Are the observations that he's making backed up by science? Have there been experiments in which the results that he's testifying about have been replicated? Defense lawyers have to critically examine forensic evidence. They have to know that this is part of their toolkit. Prosecutors have to understand that they have a responsibility not just to convict, but also to do justice. And if the forensic evidence is problematic, then they should not use it. But how do you enforce that level of education and responsibility in the real world when lawyers may not have the time or the resources or the experience? In my court, I began to say that if you have trace evidence, kind of evidence where you're matching patterns, for example, arson, handwriting, and fingerprints, and ballistics, I was going to insist on a hearing before the case began. Uh, partly it was the Hebshi experience, because I wanted to make sure that the lawyers had examined everything. The lawyers had to think twice about what they were doing. Judge Gertner believes that if more judges were to require a pretrial hearing on the forensic evidence lawyers planned on introducing in court, it might at least prevent the more dubious testimony from making it to the stand. Like dogs that can somehow sniff out arson. Liz and Robert Ramsey, lawyers for Brad Jennings, who was wrongfully incarcerated, agree. They are huge fans of the policy Judge Gertner implemented in her court. If I were a judge, especially in a criminal case, I would order that there be a hearing before every trial uh, where the qualifications of any and all experts are, are brought to me so that I can make a decision whether I'm going to let this person testify or not. So it would be pretty simple matter if the legislature were so inclined to, to enact a new statute that says, you know, there will be evidentiary hearings on a person's qualifications to, to give expert testimony before every trial. And it might be a little bit of a burden on, on the court to have to do that, but it would certainly eliminate a lot of uh, problematic uh, junk science opinions. And get a lot of cases thrown out. Yeah. And significantly reduce the dockets. However, 
pretrial hearings won't stop all faulty forensic testimony from making it in front of a jury. Because as we've discovered, the science behind even the most established forensic fields remains unproven. And that is still a major problem. What is it gonna take to fix, fix the issue? Proper testing. At the end of the day, the message is all expert testimony must be based on sufficient facts and data and needs to be reliable. That's behavioral scientist Jay Kohler. If you remember from the previous episode, Professor Kohler believes that until we empirically test all of the forensic sciences, nothing else matters. But what we haven't heard yet is what that testing would actually look like and how exactly it would be implemented. What I want to see are tests of the sort that are designed to show consumers how good that evidence is. I don't want to see tests that show that you, examiner, know how to conduct an analysis. I don't want to show that you know how to follow a protocol or that you've you know, passed all of your tests over the years. I want to see the accuracy with which you can find matches and non-matches in highly controlled situations where you're not aware that you're being tested. Because if the examiner is aware they're being tested, there's a risk that they will be conservative and they'll say inconclusive on the tough calls. You, you would like to get all of the experts together doing the same experiments, who got it right and who got it wrong. And I, I would actually propose something that's easier to manage. I would be content with a random sample of examiners being tested just for purposes of identifying baselines for the fingerprint technique, baselines for the DNA techniques, and so on. So when Professor Kohler talks about identifying the baselines, what he means is determining the average error rate of a forensic examiner or expert as they draw conclusions about any given forensic field. So to break it down in layman's terms, we're asking how often are they getting it right and how often are they getting it wrong? Now, the criticism of that is, well, that's an average. That's just a base rate. That's not my error rate. I'm better than that. Right? Everybody would probably claim they're better than the base rate. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore this type of testing. The jury needs to start with some basic baseline. You know, errors occur X percent of the time on average. These experts are not going to want to do it because they're the experts. They don't want to be called into question. They are pointing at their 30 years or 40 years of experience and saying, I don't need to do the other thing. No, you're right. They do say that. Yeah. How are we going to get them to stop? Is it up to lawmakers? And are, and are lawmakers going to actually be able to push something like this through? The lawmakers are going to be reluctant. So that, that's a problem because when you start imposing requirements like this, what that means is you're gonna have less forensic science being admitted at trial. If you have less forensic science being admitted at trial, you're probably gonna have fewer convictions. You're probably gonna have more not guilty verdicts. And if you have more not guilty verdicts, you're probably gonna have more bad guys going back onto the streets. So that's gonna be an unpopular solution uh, among policymakers, among uh, you know the uh, police organizations as well. Um, but nevertheless, from a scientific standpoint, we need that. We need to force the issue, we need to encourage this testing, and not just encourage it, we need to require it. So the question is, is there any way to actually require scientific testing of the forensic fields? We asked Professor Brandon Garrett, a man who has an idea for a more aggressive approach. 
one that forces the hand of the entire forensic community. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Brandon Garrett is a professor and legal scholar at Duke University, and he may have a solution to the problems of forensic experts in court. Okay, so Brandon, how do you get involved in studying this issue? I, I worked on cases you know, early in my career as a lawyer, which, which raised forensic issues, which saved people's lives, exonerated them. But increasingly, I saw how those people were convicted in the first place based on errors. I think like lots of people, I assume it's not like a larger problem. Um, there may be some fringe disciplines that we really shouldn't be allowing in court. But it's not going to be a problem with like firearms or fingerprints or bread and butter forensics. And then the, the more cases I saw, the, uh, the more I read the research, the more I realized that, no, this is a top to bottom problem. So then what do you think needs to be done? You shouldn't be leaving it up to courts, you know, in one case versus another to look at how forensics are used. It shouldn't be state by state. Ideally, there'd be a federal agency. A federal agency that oversees the forensic science community. Professor Garrett says it is the only way to change the court system as a whole. So, so far, when different forensic methods have been tested, it's because researchers conducted a study. And it's never been as part of what you would have if there was an actual regulatory agency where they don't approve something unless the test is vetted. You know, we saw that with, with, you know, COVID tests. There were a series of tests being offered by different companies and the like, and the tests had to be vetted to get FDA approval. Or if you have an ingredient used in food, the FDA has to approve it. You need an agency involved. This hypothetical forensic agency would begin by examining where most forensics take place. 
and where many expert witnesses work, in state-funded crime labs. There has to be some very simple rules that every clinical lab has to meet certain standards. It has to be done systematically so that everything that gets used in court has been vetted and approved. If no one is checking, then you have no idea whether there are problems. But don't crime labs already have some sort of oversight already? For whatever reason, crime labs have been exempt from all the regular regulations that a, that a scientific lab has to follow, whether it's on-site visits or inspections or auditing, proficiency testing. None of that exists in the world of crime labs. How could that possibly be true? If you recall from our previous episode, we took a tour of the Kansas City Crime Lab. Its director, Kevin Weiner, stressed the lab's accreditation and the measures they have in place to be certain of their results. But Professor Garrett is proposing we go a step further. And there should be oversight from a higher level, which is where a federal agency would come in. What's the situation like today in most crime labs? There's no way for lawyers or a judge to know what was really done, how reliable the work was, and whether they should be asking more questions. Just one page certificate, which includes like a line that says, you know, we identified the firearm, we identified the fingerprint. I mean, that, that, that's the most ama- amazing thing, I think, to, to members of the public. They assume that at least there's spot checking, like there's independent uh, review of the evidence. But accreditors don't spot check cases. They're not doing auditing. They're not a real agency. So the idea is that this federal agency would spot check every crime lab across the country. And what exactly would they be looking for? I think the the agency would need to be doing actual auditing of labs. There has to be proficiency testing. Uh, They have to be open for site inspections. Some labs need to have careful standards, not just for how you handle equipment, but for what is reported and what is said in court. That last thing Professor Garrett mentioned seems worth highlighting, as Alexis and I have come to find out. How exactly experts present forensics on the stand often has a lot more impact than the science itself. The actual testimony of experts is something worthy of oversight as well. My career as a lawyer, I would get calls from labs after wrongful conviction saying, I know you have transcripts from these DNA exoneration cases. We'd like to read them and see what our experts said in these cases of innocent people. And my reaction was like, really? Because you weren't reading those transcripts in the past. As part of regular supervision, you know, you'd, if your examiners are in court, wouldn't you want to read what they said to make sure they didn't you know, mischaracterize the lab work or raise questions in terms of professionalism or science? Oh, no, no, we don't have a practice of doing that. I think the, the agency would need to read the transcripts as part of supervision. When you talked about this type of oversight in the book you wrote, did you get pushback from the forensic science community? I don't know if they're reading it, but <laughs> uh, I mean, mostly I've gotten really positive feedback because, you know, I, I mean, I care about crime labs. I want forensics to be done right. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the pushback that I've gotten so far, it's just sort of basically who's going to pay for it if crime labs are strapped. And, and that is part of the problem that, the, the backlogs are intense. They're under pressure to, to match, match, match. And no one is paying for quality control. And uh, you know, I agree that if we're going to use it, we need to pay for it. It occurs to me 
though, that even if we had this fully funded federal agency checking the expert witnesses that come out of crime labs, you'd still have the problem of freelancers. A lot of the experts we've heard about in this investigation work on their own for prosecutors. They're contracted by them. That's, of course, even a bigger problem. Like uh, you have freelancers that aren't part of a lab uh, or you have very small police labs, which don't really have, they're not accredited. They don't have any real procedures. And so prosecutors seek out, um, like you said, freelancers. So how would you crack down on them? I don't know if that work needs to be independently checked for errors. And, and it'll also change the culture of if they know that they're making mistakes, that they'll be caught and that there'll be consequences. The need for consequences for faulty expert testimony, whether for prosecutors or for the experts themselves, is an interesting idea, if controversial. But it's something that the wrongfully incarcerated and their lawyers want desperately. Many of the people we've interviewed have visceral opinions on the matter. Would I love to see the people who know they're testifying above their science be charged with perjury? Absolutely. I'm the biggest proponent of that. I can tell you a couple of things that would be an unbelievable deterrent to do away with qualified immunity for police officers and absolute immunity from lawsuit for prosecutors and allow them to be liable for what they do when they present perjured testimony. That would be the greatest deterrent of all. If they had something over their heads, instead of immunity, police have immunity, DAs have immunity, judges have immunity. You can't touch them for what they did. The only prosecutor I ever know of that's been actually punished was there was one in Texas who had actually worked way up to be a judge by the time it happened. As a prosecutor, I mean, he had put an innocent man on death row and all he got was six months. It's nowhere near adequate. Are legal consequences for faulty expert testimony a good idea? Would that solve the problem? Or would it just make things worse? We asked Professor Garrett about the emotionally charged and controversial idea of repercussions for experts and the prosecutors that hired them when they present faulty testimony in court. Should bad experts be charged with perjury? Should they get actual criminal charges against them? Would you go that far? There are a lot of protections in place for witnesses who testify in criminal cases. Uh, and unfortunately, there may not be any particular professional discipline if they don't really belong to professional associations. And so really the only way for there to be consequences is if judges exclude them or hold them accountable for what they said in court. Uh, they can be sued if, you know, someone is wrongly convicted and they're seeking damages later, but that's, that's you know, that's hard to do. And it may be 10, 15, 20 years later. And so that's just not going to create the right incentives. So what could be done? There could be professional bar discipline for prosecutors for relying on witnesses that aren't reliable, that are known to be charlatans. But it's extremely rare for, for prosecutors to be disciplined for, uh, for uh, any type of misconduct. So there's a larger problem that we just don't have a lot of accountability mechanisms built into our criminal system. You know, we're starting to think about 
ways of holding police officers accountable, but forensics really hasn't been part of that conversation. And I think you know we may, we may need to think of new ways to 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 require accountability of experts who testify. Do you feel like there's been progress made? I feel like there's been some okay progress in recent years, but but really, really slowly. Um, and uh, and I, I I do think that much more much more aggressive action needs to be taken. But really, this is a problem that's been festering for decades, and very little has been done about it. We wondered why such a glaring problem in the court system has been lingering year after year. Former Judge Nancy Gertner shared what she sees as the biggest obstacle to change. The problem is this stuff, ballistics, fingerprint, shoe pattern analysis, these had been admitted in case after case after case after case. Is it this idea of precedent? Yes. According to Judge Gertner, the legal inertia known as precedent stands in the way of any meaningful reform. The way I described it once in one of the decisions I wrote, it was grandfathering in irrationality. Arson analysis and handwriting and fingerprints and ballistics all evolved in the court as tools of prosecutors. If the court isn't going to reverse the judge for allowing this evidence in, the judge will say, well, I'm going to allow it in in the next case. And if they allow it in in the next case, the lawyer's not going to bother to challenge it. And if they don't challenge it, the judge doesn't examine it. Court of Appeals affirms. And it goes on and on and on. And it's sort of a vicious cycle. What will stop this cyclical acceptance of some of these sciences? For me, the, the, actually the most significant development would be if judges get reversed for allowing in evidence that while it has an old pedigree, has been re-examined and found to be wanting. And if courts of appeals say, hey, district court judge, you don't have the discretion to allow in stuff that is really no longer considered valid and reverse convictions, that would make a difference. In other words, if a single appeals court would pick a case where the conviction relied on an unproven forensic science and then overturn that ruling, that new precedent would go a long way towards giving judges the discretion to reform the system internally. And they might stop more innocent people from going to prison. The courts are going to need to say, we will not admit this evidence until you show me the data. Conduct the relevant studies. We need to force the issue. I think that needs to come from the courts. That's behavioral science professor Jay Kohler again echoing the need for a landmark court case reversing decades of precedent. So when you say it's gonna be up to the courts, you're talking about then it's gonna be up to a specific trial and the courts making a precedent, right? Yes. It'd probably be an important case, you know, where the forensic science plays an important role. You know, it could be a rape case, could be a murder case. It's, you know, a case where the forensic science is absolutely critical. And if a trial judge says, yes, I know your fingerprint examiner, yes, I know that fingerprint testimony has been admitted for a hundred years, 
but not in my court, not without sufficient facts and data. Now you're gonna see the incentive structure change. Now you're gonna see the forensic science community say, holy cow, we've got to do these studies or we're not gonna get admitted in court. Has any trial judge tried this before? Is, it, is there anybody out there that's, that's doing it? A few, not many. The court has great respect, as you probably know, for what's been done in the past. And so, you know, it'll take, it'll take a big movement. For his part, Duke professor Brandon Garrett is optimistic that that sort of social movement could actually be at hand. I do think that there'll be real progress made in the years to come, especially you, because, Brandon. you know, we... I think, you know, people didn't think that the police were going to get meaningfully regulated either. And, you know, we've seen this uh, just a swath of legislation get passed over the just in the last year. And so I, I think, you know, forensics reform can and will be part of that conversation. So I'm hopeful. When you sit there and you listen to David Camp's story, you get sick to your stomach. Yeah. And it's not like the situation is getting better because I guarantee you right now there's 10 David Cams that are being tried right now as we speak and that didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And something needs to be done. But I think like step one would be the government acknowledging that this is an issue. But for some reason, the idea of setting new precedent in courts is too daunting or difficult to have happen. We're up against a system where, you know, the prosecution has the upper hand, the state has the upper hand, and it's a win at all cost mentality and monetary motivations. People don't want the business of experts to go away. What we've got are experts in this fake science talking to 12 ordinary people, trying to convince them that it's real. The jury doesn't know any better. This whole system is broken. Somebody has to come in and say, we want this fixed now, because this is a disaster, not only in the past, it's a disaster waiting to happen every day. It's going to take everyone in the system working together to fix this issue. All the way to the top, with the judges, down to the bottom, with each of us as potential jury members, who must learn to become more objective when it comes to expert testimony. Until those reforms happen, we're left to reckon with a justice system that is inevitably going to continue wrongfully convicting people like David Cam. During our investigation, we had the opportunity to speak with two wrongfully incarcerated men, David Cam and Bill Richards. Their stories were so tragic and frankly, unforgettable. Collectively, they spent 36 years in prison at the hands of faulty expert testimony. It's only fitting that we should give Bill and David the last word on how to reform the system. Do you have any advice for potential jurors who may sit on murder trials one day and may be shown or hear testimony about some of these forensic sciences? Jurors can ask questions by sending a note to the judge and ask them to explain what the National Academy of Science feels about their particular forensic science. You just can't believe what they're telling you. And that's why there's so many thousands of people being exonerated. And for everyone who gets exonerated, there's probably 100 innocent people in prison. 
the system is broken. It, it needs to be rebuilt from the ground up. It, it needs a complete overhaul. It really does. Just um, from beginning to end, you know, it needs to be evaluated um, externally from within the criminal justice system because they don't do a very good job of policing themselves. It takes something like George Floyd case where, you know, people can actually see what's going on and then they go, holy shit. It's so, it's so big and it's so messed up. Law enforcement, prosecutors, the government to, number one, acknowledge it's flawed. Acknowledge that mistakes happen. And initially what needs to happen is something needs to be put into place where there can be some checks and balances. How do you see your story, especially when it comes to experts, how do you see your, your story being able to help? As they say, with great power comes great responsibility. I think what we're lacking right now in the law enforcement community is that responsibility. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Vinciun, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Koontz, along with myself, Alexis Linkletter, and Billy Jensen. Executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing by Mike Gattinella. Our editor is Corey Nye. The music and score that you've heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. Billy and I want to extend a very special thanks to everyone who contributed to this series and their willingness to speak candidly about this very important topic. Be on the lookout for our next Unraveled investigation, coming soon to this feed. Subscribe here or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcasts that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening and for your support. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.